0: Can we thank our worship team and our tech team again every week? Jake, thanks for bringing this out. We are so, so blessed here. You guys have no idea to have countless volunteers, not just the ones that occupy the stage, but the ones throughout our building that make our weekends possible. And so I ought to reiterate that nice card on your seat for the splash here. I forgot to take one up with me, but seriously... Whether or not you think children's ministry is your deal, I would ask you to prayerfully consider what it might look like for you to make a small commitment to us five nights or five Sundays. Maybe you want to get crazy and do all ten, but it all begins with us as kids. And so if you would, please take some time later on, potentially fill that out, and then drop it off in one of our give boxes. Well, my name is Jed. It is a privilege and honor to get to serve one of our pastors on staff and if you are a guest with us today we would like to thank you for giving us a portion of your weekend and for those of you that are watching online trying to figure out whether or not you'd like to physically step foot into our building I hope you would know that our church at large is so much better than what we can articulate or show you in a little sermon so come and check us out in person And, and if you're here all the time Thank you, as always, for walking alongside us as together we discover what it looks like to find and follow Jesus. Well, I have the privilege today of closing out a series that I have thoroughly enjoyed that has been entitled Grace Like water. And for the last several weeks, culminating in Easter Sunday, our lead pastor Britt has taken us through a collection of messages that talk about how through Jesus Christ, the pure and amazing grace of God flows to us and can subsequently flow through us to others. So typically, When Britt has these ideas for these sermons, we brainstorm together. We'll bring in some other staff members. We'll come up with passages of scripture or titles. And Britt, he's the best at coming up with titles. And so usually when I'm assigned something, he'll give me a title. And then it's up to me to kind of associate in my mind passages of scripture or metaphors, narratives, real word examples. And the title that Britt gave me for this message is On Tap. So I have to be honest with you. Even though it would probably be more appropriate for me to think first of a faucet and water flowing readily available from there, I could not help but think about a great restaurant in town called Yard House, and all of the beverages are on tap there, and beer, of course, is predominantly made of water, but I decided it would probably not so appropriate for me to use that as the launching board for this sermon series, so I decided I would at least tell you that that is where my mind went, and now we can move on together. Uh, When I think about grace being on tap, when I think about the grace of God being readily available and accessible to us, this grace that flows and where He is the source, I started thinking about a message several years ago that I was preparing when it approached the Advent season. And I was doing a word study with the Greek words for grace and joy and seeing how closely they correlate with one another. And I was struck to find this. It wasn't something that we had learned in school. It just so happened to be something that was discovered over the course of studying for that particular message. And it's your first fill in the blank here. You might find it interesting to note that our Gospels do not ever translate Jesus as saying the word grace. Did you know that? Did you know that there is not one explicit mention of Jesus teaching on the subject of grace? And that's pretty striking, I'd say, because we talk about grace a lot. It is so foundational to our faith. And so we would imagine, of course, that Jesus himself would be the primary source of speaking on this subject matter. But Jesus doesn't devote time to it. It seems as though it's devoid of from his vernacular. The closest that we get to it is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue of his hometown, and the people are amazed, and the text says they're amazed at his gracious words. And then two chapters later in the Greek manuscripts, we actually do have the Greek word that we typically translate into grace, charis, but there, as Jesus is talking about loving our enemies, we don't translate it as grace in the English because contextually that's not quite what we would expect to hear there. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And then he goes on to talk about loving our enemies. And that's it. Nowhere else. So here's where you might be tracking with me. And perhaps you've heard this before. This is the second fill-in-the-blank on your note sheet. Even though Jesus doesn't explicitly teach on grace, he need not because Jesus is the embodiment of grace. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. The glory is the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Paul, in his letter to Titus, takes this a step further when he personifies the grace of God manifest in Jesus when he says, for the grace of God has appeared to us, bringing salvation To They're speaking of Jesus and his redemptive works. We realize that even though Jesus doesn't say the word grace, the age-old axiom that actions speak louder than words certainly applies here. So where are we going to go? If we're not going to use yard house, how do we think about this? Well, several weeks ago as we were planning for our Easter service, uh, I, I was thinking about how the water theme would you know, permeate that whole experience for us. And several months before, when Brad said this is going to be our, our series during the Easter time, I really was thinking, how is water going to be a part of our services in a way that isn't cheesy and is impactful? And so one of the things I ended up doing was spend hours watching water footage online, trying to find something that was striking to me. I finally came across that montage that you saw on Easter Sunday when Danny, our middle school pastor, did a beautiful job. He wrote that spoken word piece over that to articulate how the grace of God is like water. And so that was that. But over the course of watching hours of water footage, I also stumbled across another video that is three minutes long. And I have no idea why this video was created, but I could not help but see the parallels between what I'd be speaking about today. And so you're allowed to laugh. I know we're at church, but you are allowed to laugh. And I would like to show you a three-minute video that is without dialogue that hopefully lets you understand more how the grace of God is like water. Let's roll that footage. That's all, folks. (laughs) Oh, man. Is that just not... That's just gold. I I have no idea what they were thinking when they created that video, but God certainly redeems all things, and now it's found its way into a sermon. So we can thank them for whatever they were thinking about. Man, I I love that little video. I think it parallels this idea of what we're trying to communicate so much better than anything that I could give you. So I'm going to work from that this morning and you've got some uh, fill in the blanks and reflection of that video and some scripture that is next to it. But here's the first thought that I think we see communicated there, that grace flows freely, but it is costly. I showed this video to a few of our staff members and one of them, Lisa Owens, our director of outreach, one of the first things she said is, the sound, the sound of the water constantly running, doesn't it just bug you? Uh, you know for those of us that have lived in California, you know We've been in this drought that's 30 or so years long and they have put restrictions on how we use our water And so we can understand what it is for water to be wasted. It is a precious Commodity that we tend to take for granted when I was uh, in college It was the, the, the last semester and I was married at that point already and it was probably one of the worst times Uh, for Mallory, my wife, but outside of me just being a ridiculous young adult, uh, one of the things that made it hard for her was that I took an environmental science course class, and I became so acutely aware of my ecological footprint and how I needed to do better in the home, and so there was no appliance that was left plugged into the walls, and if I heard the sound of water, I would rush and turn it off, And even though I'm not so extreme anymore, I've lapsed back into my sinful ways. Uh, At least when I'm with our sons and we take a shower, when we're about to get to that soaping part after we've gotten wet, I turn the water off and we sing a song, save water, save water. So water is precious. It's something that even though we think is unlimited, it's wasteful if we just let it flow that way. And that isn't a comment about whether or not God's grace is going to run out for us. It's a reflection on what we do with the fact that we believe it's continually available for us to take from. It's costly. And it's not just costly if we choose to reject it and what that means for the world around us. If we were to go back to the very beginning about what grace is, we recognize that it cost God. Romans chapter 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and this access to the grace in which we now stand. And later on it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's easy for us to talk about death and what Christ did on the cross. It's something that's really common to those of us that have grown up in the church setting, so much so that it's like that water that we see over and over again. It appears as though it's lost the weight. It doesn't quite mean as much as it would if we were to be confronted with it afresh for the first time. And that's difficult for us. This is why when we talk about grace, I'm more inclined to think that our traditional two-word description of it, that grace is unmerited favor, does not really suffice for the depth and the gravity of what is attempting to be articulated there. And I can appreciate that unmerited favor is a concise way of us understanding that the kindness of God can lead us to repentance made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even if I say an unmerited favor that I don't deserve it or I don't earn it, I still tend to think about myself being the main recipient of that grace. And so to take it bigger and wider, it's helpful for me to remember that when we look at the word grace in the original language, it's, it's a movement word. It's a word that describes God inclining or leaning, extending, moving towards us. And that is so important because what is there in the backdrop of our scriptures, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, what we'd allude to as the Old Testament, is this idea over and over of the people asking God if he will reject forever, if he will turn away forever, if he will spurn Forever And so God in his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness most fully manifest in Jesus coming to earth, forsaking heaven for this, emptying himself, becoming like us, taking on the nature of the slave, as the writer of Hebrews would say, enduring the cross and scorning its shame, all of that assumes that God has not given up on us. And the idea of God not giving up on us, when he has every reason to forsake us and say, that's it, I've had enough, I'll just start over on some other planet or wherever that might happen, isn't it incredible to think But the good news, the gospel of this kingdom is that the king would make himself nothing so that in him everything might be brought to fullness and reconciliation. Grace flows freely, but it is not without cost. Here's the second fill-in-the-blank there. In light of that, it seems as though we are good at reflecting on grace. And here's the tongue-in-cheek. This is sarcastic. I hope you catch it. We're even better at rejecting it. In that video, we see our main character coming back to that flowing water over and over Throughout the day, I I love this scene where he gets that phone call on that really old red phone. Remember those phones that look like that? And you'd play Snake, back when Snake was, was like the game that you would play. And I don't know, for whatever reason, when I see that phone ring, I just feel like his mom is calling him saying, Honey, are you still doing everything out of the toilet? And he doesn't answer the phone call. That's just my speculation. But... The idea there of him constantly looking at it and surveying it, but then doing nothing meaningful with it kind of reminds me of our faith community. We talk about grace more than anything, don't we? We constantly theologize about it. We sing songs about it. We have tattoos with grace on us. I mean, we, we talk about grace to no end, and it's a beautiful thing, but at a certain point, What good is it for us to just reflect on it and for us to not move in response to it, to this world around us that is in such desperate need for not just this world around us, us, ourselves? How is it helpful I know that we reject this grace because I see over and over in Scripture admonitions to live counter to how I am inclined to live. This is not up on the screens, but Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says this, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How many of those things do we consistently employ in our lives? Seems to me that I struggle to not let evil talk come out of my mouth. I struggle to only have words that are used to give grace to those who hear. I'm pretty sure that sadly So much of my existence has grieved the Holy Spirit of God because of the manner in which that I have gone about living my life in broken relationship with those around me. And I'd imagine that I am not alone in this. I'd imagine that you're right there with me. I'm really appreciative of who I think is one of the most influential modern theologians, and I'm no comprehensive scholar on Calbert, but I so appreciate how his theological works are so grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he said in so far as theology and what we do with theology, he said the best theology would need no advocates. It would prove itself. And when Karl Barth writes about theology proving itself, the reason why he could say that is because his theology is built on Jesus Christ, the Word becoming flesh. Every single theological term that Barth could address found itself in the person of Christ over and over and over again. And I have to wonder, with how much we speak or sing about grace, what the world would actually say. If we were to ask the world to describe how our faith community lives out, would grace be a word that rises to the surface? I'm not sure it would be. Because here's what I think we're inclined to do. It's the next fill in the blank. You and I, we are prone to share a stagnant version of grace. A grace that really doesn't seem that impressive. I mean, maybe impressive for us. It's kind of like that toilet water. Why does grace seem to be that thing that, and forgive me for bringing this, this, this imagery to your mind, but that place where we just excrete in and then it flushes, then it flows to take care of my stuff, my sin, my wrongdoing, but then it, outside of that, it's, it's not It's not much. You know, when I was watching that video, I couldn't help but think about our youngest son. Uh, we've got three little boys, and Truett is our youngest. He's 18 months old. And I told First Service that I hadn't shared this with Mallory, so, honey, you're going to hear this for the first time. That's fun. Uh, several weeks ago, our little boy Truett, uh, he had kind of, you know, gone to some place in the house, and he was really quiet. And for those of you that have kids, and you can just understand kids, we we're all kids, when it's really quiet, something's going on, right? Well, Truett had uh, found his way into the bathroom and he came out really, really happy and he was soaking wet and his curly hair was mopped flat and he was smiling and he was dripping from head to toe. Truett had decided that he was going to go to that stagnant water at level height and take a bath there. As you can imagine, I did my very best to remember these are kind of the moments that all parents should have, but I wasn't too thrilled. How does God think about our interaction with grace or our substitutes for it? How does He see us when we come out just soaking wet yeah, maybe there is this, wow, what what are you doing? But I'd imagine his heart for us is, there's so much more. It's not just this disappointment in us, it's this sadness that we have chosen to go back to something that fails in comparison to what he really has for us, this abundant life that is so available, that is on tap, that's been running in the background the whole time. Why do we keep going back to this? I so appreciate Peter when he writes in his letter in chapter 4, verse 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. There's something about the experience collectively that we can have when we don't live out of the toilet. There's a life that awaits us with the people around us. It says like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, grace upon grace upon graces, people who are receiving that and have a desire to do so much more with it. We ought to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, move to those around us. And in doing so, it says that God will get the glory. And when we talk about glory and God receiving glory, this isn't just about light shining brighter or whatever images of glory you have. The weight of that glory, the idea that we would have good opinion or right opinion about God is what matters. And when we live with the true and pure grace of God at the forefront of our lives, How are those around us not going to begin to move towards the true source of grace? How is this world around us not going to be compelled to see that there is something so much better than whatever it is we will do apart from God? I think it's really important then that Peter is the one who writes... These words because he himself epitomizes someone whose life has been transformed by grace and then something that precedes grace. Here's your next fill in the blank. The act of grace is preceded by an abounding of mercy. Remember how we began this message, learning or maybe being reminded again that Jesus does not explicitly teach on grace? What he does talk about consistently is mercy. And if there were a word, if there were a word outside of grace that we ought to spend more time reveling in and appreciating and experiencing, it would be mercy. In the Hebrew, chesed, this idea that God has this unfailing, unrelenting love for us, this endurance towards us, despite our failings, what we would see as his loyalty to his covenant, the fact that he would uphold his end, his promise, his faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our inability to hold up our end of the bargain. God, his mercy endures forever, over and over in the Old Testament. We see these words that remind the people that even though it may seem as though God is not with us, that he is not for us. He is, and that we are the ones who have been rejecting and living like we are not for him. Mercy precedes the act of grace. There's this compassion in God, like a parent towards a wayward child. And I want to know more of what that's like. Because it's pretty evident to me that I don't really understand what that means. It's pretty evident to me that I'm not as struck by the mercy of God as someone like the Apostle Paul, who in his first letter to the Timothy would say, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, the four but for that reason, I received mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. The Apostle Paul was so attuned to the compassion of God that is so undeserved because he was responsible for the death and the murder of Christians. These were his enemies. These were the ones whom he was out to exterminate. And in going to exterminate the other, he is miraculously confronted by Jesus. And his life takes this dramatic shift. And so he spends the rest of it attempting to show that he is now a steward, a herald of this gospel that is not just for a people group, but through the Israelites. God would reveal a blessing that is for the whole world that we see traced back all the way to God's first conversation with Abraham. It's been there the whole time, this mercy that would spur God to give us what we know as the ministry of reconciliation, that God would make him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. And as Paul further writes, we implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. And therefore, as co-partners with God, we urge you not to take the grace of God in vain, Mercy, compassion, something that I don't understand well. And I don't think our culture and we as a people understand it well either. We're pretty dismissive. We're pretty quick-tempered. We're pretty judgmental and prejudiced and hypocritical. We love to have our opinions. We are quick to speak and slow to listen. We do the opposite of what Scripture admonishes and provides for us to do. We think that our way and our thoughts and our opinion, whether it be about politics or religion or lifestyle or whatever, that we suddenly have the capacity to perfectly say how this person or you ought to correct before God can do his work. And we've said it time and time again, this is in no way to diminish sin. This is in no way to diminish the brokenness and the fallenness of every single one of us. It is to magnify the Savior, the only one who can redeem us from the depths of our depravity. And in order for me to understand what mercy is for another person, I must become attuned to the depths of my depravity and sin. I am the one that must look in the mirror and recognize that even though I am not deserving of the grace, grace and mercy of God some way, somehow, just like every other human being on this planet, the mercy and the grace of God meets me where I am and calls me towards something and someone better. And in the time in our world where we are quick to look at others And position ourselves in a way that is separate. Would we remember that the gospel of God begins with us being separate because of our sin? And what does God do? He takes the divine initiative and he transgresses or he goes across that chasm of sin. And he meets us where we are. That is not the toilet bowl. That is a grace that is flowing and captivates me where I am. And I want to be so absorbed and immersed by that, but I cannot help, that I cannot help, excuse me, that live with an urgency that I know that I lack often to bring other people to the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So here's how I would like to conclude our time. Here's your final. Fill in the blank. It says, go and learn what this means. And I'm not telling you to take my directive and go and figure out something that I have figured out. No, no, no. I'm quoting Jesus here because it's something that I need to have sink further into my being. It's something that I obviously, with the manner in which I treat my wife and my kids and the strangers that I've encountered over the time, maybe some of you, that the mercy of God surely has not saturated me in a way that is real. I can talk about something all I want, but for it to be, be found in my life daily is a whole nother story. So when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I have to ask myself, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to take words found in the story of Hosea and his wayward wife, Gomer, which would be a picture of God and his relationship with Israel, just a microcosm of what we find in humanity at large. This ever-present rebellion, this adultery, this decision to explicitly go against what God would want for us. Us. What would it mean for me to not just render my garments, but to rend my heart, as Joel talks about? What would it mean for me to experience something that compels me to not just apologize to God or want to sacrifice in the old sacrificial way, but to truly see that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he certainly did atone for our sins, if he certainly did rise from the dead, then there is a life for me that is so much better a life for me where he desires that I live as one who's received mercy. Is he not the one in the Beatitudes that said, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. For something as important, as critical as the compassion of God, should I not begin by looking at my life? and what would be found there. Here's one of two ways that I think that you and I can experience what it means to go and learn what this means. The first, if you're in this room, and you have yet to absolve yourself of any pressure to think that you could somehow, by your own good works or your ability, save yourself, deliver yourself from sin the way that is ever-present in your life and the way that it consumes as a power, as a force. I would urge you, as Scripture says today, not to harden your hearts. I would urge you to consider the fact that in Jesus, the grace of God has appeared, that you and I can absolutely experience and accept and receive his free gift of salvation that isn't just something we ought to store for ourselves, that doesn't just give us a deposit of security for heaven someday, but actually invites us into a life where we can, modeled like Jesus, become more like him for the sake of this world around us and actually be a part of the life-giving mission to reconcile all things to himself. You can be a part of something so much better than just waking up every day trying to figure out what's going to happen next and how you are going to get by. The grace of God for you exists because Jesus Christ atoned for our sins on the cross and he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave. You and I have access to that. And if today you need to, for the first time, articulate that he is in fact Lord and Savior, at the conclusion of our services, we have a prayer team that stands And I would invite you and encourage you and implore you to take a moment with another human being who has experienced the mercy and grace of God and share that moment and be prayed with or to put that down in your in-touch card and to put it in the giving box and to remember that you're invited into something so much better now. And then for those of us who have already made that proclamation, that statement of faith, would we remember that salvation isn't just something that exists in our past. It's not just something in our rearview mirror. It's something that ought to drive us. The love of Christ compels us. You and I have the opportunity to live in response. And so to go and learn what this means, I think this week for me, And perhaps what I'll invite you to do for you is to spend time in Scripture reading about what Jesus says about mercy. Would you consider doing that? Would you consider going through the Gospel of Matthew, even reading it closely and sitting with Jesus' words to go and learn what this means? To not be as the Pharisees in hypocrisy and say that we have something, but then not truly live it. So those two things there for you. If there's anything else, and I'm sure there's much more, would the grace and the mercy of God find you this week? Would you be blown away knowing that for all of our stupidity and our wretchedness, our brokenness, that the grace and the mercy of God exists there? Let's pray.